Morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 22? It's page 237 in the Bibles in the pews, where we enter the final phase of this Old Testament book. We're into the last three chapters, so this is the last three weeks in our series, Life After 40. And last week, Bennett took us through chapters 13 to 21, where the Israelites take possession of the land and then they divide it all up amongst the various tribes. But Bennett finished with these words ringing in our ears. It's the very last verse of chapter 21. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. And so we walked out of here last Sunday remembering and recognizing and hopefully rejoicing in the breathtaking faithfulness of God that all that he had promised became reality. God had come through. Not one single promise failed. Any query concerning God's faithfulness had been resolved. It had been settled. And so now, as we come into Joshua 22, the focus and the attention shifts. Now the question on everyone's lips is this. Will the people of God remain faithful? God has come through. Will they now come through or will they bail out? And that's a question that still hangs in the air. It's a question that still lingers and still confronts us. And so as we begin to look at chapter 22 and 23 and 24 for that matter, I want us to reconsider and reevaluate and rediscover the importance of our faithfulness to God. Because in these last three chapters of Joshua, they are preoccupied with Israel's fidelity, Israel's commitment, and Israel's devotion to God. And this morning, in a sense, I want the focus to be on us, and our fidelity, and our commitment, and our devotion to this breathtakingly faithful God. So let's read the story. And once again, this chapter contains a great, although I would suggest a relatively unknown story. So let's start at verse 1. Then Joshua summoned, now let's stop there. If you look across at chapter 23, the end of verse 1, the start of verse 2, it says this, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned. And then flick over to chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Joshua assembled all the tribes at Shechem, he summoned. You see, Joshua's on his way out, literally. And he's got important things to say. And so this book closes with Joshua convening three gathered assemblies of the people of God. He's got key messages to share, key things that need to be said. Back to verse 1, chapter 22. Because we discover on this occasion that the people he summoned were the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. That's two and a half out of twelve. These were the eastern Transjordan tribes. We'll come back to that in a moment. Let's go to verse 2. Because here's what Joshua said to them. You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but you have carried out the mission the Lord, your God, gave you. 
Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Now, if you still have your Bible open, flick back to Joshua chapter 1. Because we need to look at verses 12 to 15 to discover more about the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. It says this, But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the Lord your God, gave you. The Lord your God has given you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, fully armed, must, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers and until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you and until they have taken possession of the land that the Lord, your God, is giving them. So 21 chapters later, a whole pile of obedience later, a whole catalogue of activity later, and Joshua is now in a place where he commends these two and a half tribes. And what he says is, referring back to chapter 1, he says, listen, you have obeyed. You didn't run out on your brothers. You have completed the mission. So now you can return home. Now you can go back to the east side. And those words, 21 chapters later, years later maybe, those words, that commendation must have come as a massive encouragement. Because whenever you've seen something through, it's good to get a bit of decent, positive feedback and approval, isn't it? I don't want to make too much of this, but you know, it's worth remembering the importance of affirmation. We tend to be quick, I'm sorry, I tend to be quick to voice off whenever someone fails to do what I hoped they would do, what I expected them to do, what I'd asked them to do. But sometimes I'm a lot slower to express my support and appreciation when they do. And maybe there's a kid here this morning. Maybe there's a colleague in work. Maybe there's another church member who really needs to hear and would value your affirming, well done. It's just a thought. Pick up the story again in verse 5. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. Now this on the screen here, I want to suggest, is a brilliant model. A commandment before a commandment. In other words, affirm what someone has done well before you issue another set of instructions. Now, by the way, I know what some of you are thinking right now. David, there's no such word as commandment. Okay? And you're right, there isn't. But in terms of a cliche and a nice little phrase, it works. Okay? And there is a kind of biblical principle for this. Because, for example, Paul spends... Three chapters in 1 Thessalonians expressing thanks and joy concerning the Christians there before he moves on to command them and instruct them. Plus in Revelation 2 and 3 we all know that the risen Christ tends to commend the churches before he critiques them. So it's not a bad model to adopt. Commend someone before you ask them to do something. But then comes the command back to verse 5. Back to the second half of that verse. Here is the command. To love the Lord your God. To walk in obedience to him. To keep his commands. To hold fast to him. And to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And you know if there's ever a verse to embrace. 
If ever there's a set of instructions and advice to take on board and live out, then it's all there on the screen. Here is one of those potential life-defining, life-determining verses to learn, to frame, and to flesh out. And actually, it's a great verse to adopt as a kind of mantra to the Christian faith. You could almost describe this as Christianity in a nutshell. If you're looking for a succinct and a helpful definition of what does it actually mean to be a Christian, what does it actually look like? Well, then here it is. There it is. Here's how the message puts it. Love God, your God. Walk in all his ways. Do what he's commanded. Embrace him and serve him with everything you are and everything you have. And as a Christian... I find that an incredibly helpful lens through which to see and assess my own faith development. In other words, is this a fair description of my genuine desire? Is this an actual portrayal of my day-to-day life? I mean, as I reflect and as others watch, do they see in me someone who loves God? Do they see in me someone who demonstrates obedience to God in the nitty-gritty of life? Do they see in me someone who tries to live to God's values, to God's principles, to God's blueprint, to God's guidelines? Do they see in me someone who holds on to God no matter what? And do they see in me someone who serves God wholeheartedly, in Caleb's style, as we were hearing about last week? Do you know this is a great heart-searching checklist to filter your life through. You see, these people groups in Joshua 2, the two and a half tribes, they had come a long way in their faith journey. They had lived the life. They had been obedient in the immediate past, but Joshua was really concerned that they didn't take the foot off the pedal, that they didn't risk the possibility and the crippling effect of gradual spiritual drift. That they didn't get, that they didn't become too comfortable or too settled. Yes, they had been obedient. Yes, they had journeyed so far, but it wasn't over. The race wasn't finished. And so Joshua calls them on. He says, guys, let's go deeper. Let's go further. Let's live this life. You've done well. I commend you for that. But please don't stop there. Keep walking it out. And for many of us here this morning, many of us have journeyed quite far. Many of us are trying to live this life, but we need the constant encouragement to keep and maintain the focus, to renew our commitment, to renew our resolve. And therefore, I want to suggest that these verses or these words remain powerfully relevant today. And as I've let those words filter through my own thinking this week, What I have found is that I need, in a sense, to call myself back to these five core aspects of what I am meant to be about. And in some ways, I thought I'd I'd love us to call us back there as a church. Because, you know, in the midst of life, in the midst of busyness, including the busyness of church life, with all the legitimate demands and all the really good stuff that I know so many of you are doing or involved in, you can still lose perspective. 
I know I do. And this verse has helped me this week to realign my thinking. And for Joshua, these words would act as a graphic and a tangible reminder to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Listen, guys, remain faithful. God's been faithful to you. We heard that the last verse, chapter 21. God's been faithful to you, but now I'm asking you, I'm commanding you, I'm urging you, remain faithful to this breathtakingly faithful God. And what does it actually look like to remain faithful? Well, there it is. It means to love God. It means to walk in obedience to him. It means to keep his commands. It means to hold fast to him. It means to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And that's the challenge, in a sense, I'd love you to pick up and take away with you this morning. And just allow those words to speak into your life this week. But back to the story. Let's look at verses 6 to 8. Now, I know there's a lot of verses in this, and I know it's 25 past, but don't worry, we're getting there, okay? Verses 6 to 8 in Joshua 22 says this then Joshua blessed them and he sent them away and they went to their homes so Joshua blesses them and he sends them on their way let's pick it up again in verse 9 so the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Cana and returned to Gilead their own land which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses now when they came to Gileloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. Now, building any kind of altar, never mind an imposing one, was a really interesting decision, to say the least. Because altars were generally seen as places, as sites, as centers of worship and sacrifice. Again, if you've got your Bible, flick back to Deuteronomy 12. Because here you discover that for the Israelites there was to be only one place of worship, one venue, one location. Deuteronomy 12 verse 3 says this, But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among the tribes, and to that place you must go. Verse 13 continues, Be very careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings Anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord your God will choose in one of your tribes. So the fact is, the place has been sorted. And by the Jordan, or beside the Jordan, was not that place. So there's an apparent problem here. There's a significant issue that the Israelites are going to have to address. Let's read on verse 11. When the Israelites heard that they had built an altar on the border of Canaan at Gileloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. You see, this was serious. Because for the Israelites, certainly at this stage of their story, this stage of their journey, true, authentic, God-honoring worship mattered. There was a way that worship was meant to be expressed. Because they knew what God expected. And at this point of the story, it looked like there was a renegade group of believers who were heading way off course. Now today in our context, we all know that there's not one specific place. But there still is a way to worship. 
And Jesus made it clear to the woman at the well in John 4 that venue was no longer an issue. It didn't matter where you went. But what did matter was the way you went and how you worshipped. And so he said this, a time has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For these are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. The Israelites were concerned about true worship in Joshua 22. Jesus was concerned about true worship in John 4. And we should be concerned about true worship in Belfast in 2009. Is our worship in spirit and in truth? That's the way to worship. And whether you have engaged in that type of worship this morning is only a matter between you and God. Let's read on. Verse 13. So the Israelites sent, I'm going to call them Phinus. I'm sure it's not the right way to pronounce it. But uh, the Israelites sent Phinus, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, to Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Incidentally, some people wonder, why wasn't Joshua sent? I mean, after all, he was the leader. But anyway, he wasn't. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one for each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. And when they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with God? How could you do this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? You see, the issue here for the Israelites was apostasy. The nine and a half tribes were convinced that by building this altar, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh were effectively renouncing their faith. And they just could not get their heads around this. Especially, I suppose, in light of the opening section of this chapter. I mean, remember, this group of people had been so obedient. This group of people hadn't done a runner. This group of people had completed a mission. They were good guys. Not only that, how could they do this after Joshua blessed them? And he blessed them incredibly. If you read earlier, I didn't read verses 68. But he blessed them incredibly and he sent them on their way. And he had given them those five direct instructions that we just looked at a moment ago. And yet they decided to renounce and reject their faith, it would seem, in such a short space of time and in such an extreme way that the rest of the Israelites just couldn't stomach this. How could you break faith? How could you turn away? And again, I don't want to make too much of this, because as we're about to see, there had been a massive misunderstanding. But I'm pretty sure that most of us sitting here this morning know of someone who once lived a life. And I know I've shared this before. I know lots of people who once lived the life. Who once were so obedient, who once loved, who once walked, who once kept, who once held, who once served. And yet today, it seems they've rejected their faith. And we're left scratching our heads. I am. Sometimes even hurt by that. Maybe even angry with them. The question is, What have I done about it? What do we do whenever we hear that someone has rejected the faith? 
And in terms of this story, the action that the Israelites plan seems a bit harsh. I don't think we should ever suggest this. They assemble everyone and decide to launch out an all-out attack. Which seems incredibly severe and slightly over the top. But let's read on because verses 17 to 20 give us some insight into why the Israelites reacted so strongly. Verse 17. Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves, other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not the wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. You see, whenever you appreciate how seriously God takes sin, and whenever you've witnessed and experienced the consequences or the kickback of sin, you tend to be more sensitive to it. You tend to be more concerned about it. And Finus and the ten tribal leaders, they refer to these two specific incidents. The sin of Peor, the unfaithfulness of Achan. Now we've already visited Achan's story. If you've been here part of this series, it's in Joshua chapter 7. And he sinned and he messed up. And what happened as a result, he was stoned to death. He was stoned to death. His sons were stoned to death. His cattle were stoned to death. His donkeys were stoned to death. His sheep were stoned to death. And in addition, his sin had a knock-on effect. Because 3,000 Israelites were trounced by the men of Ai. And 36 of them lost their lives. The memory of that was still live. It was still fresh. This was still a raw issue for the Israelites. In terms of what happened at Peor, you've got to flick back to Numbers 25 to discover that mess. Now, you don't need to do it. Let me just summarize it for you. This is not pleasant. The Israelite men, they decided that they were going to mix it up. They decided they were going to mix it up by engaging in sexual immorality with Moabite women. And so what they did was they did that and also they practiced Baal worship. And it says in verse 3 of Numbers 25 that the Lord's anger burned against them. Hardly surprising. Moses is then ordered to take extreme measures. And he does take extreme measures. Read the story when you go home this afternoon. It's incredible. Moses is ordered to take extreme measures and sort this whole shambles out. But while he's sorting it out, an Israelite man walks right past him, arm in arm, with a Moabite woman, and walks into a tent. Leave the rest to your imagination. Finus, as in the same Finus that's here in Joshua 22, he cannot stand back and watch this. So he follows the Israelite into the tent, takes his spear, drives it through the Israelite, right through him, and into the Moabite woman's abdomen. And the minute he does that, the plague that God had sent on the Israelites because of their sin stopped. But it only stopped after 24,000 Israelites died as a result of the plague God sent. And the point is this. God takes sin so seriously. 
And as the Israelites in Joshua 22 recall the sin of Peor, and as they recall the sin of Achan, they try to remind the eastern tribes, listen guys, you're playing with fire. You're playing with fire here. Your sin and your rebellion is going to wreck your lives, but not only going to wreck your lives, it's going to wreck lots of other people's lives. And then again, there are so many places I would love to go with that. And I don't have time to go there. But the key issue to highlight is this. Sin wreaks havoc. Not only in individual lives, not only in the people who do it, but in so many people around them. And I know there are some people sitting here this morning. Some people sitting here this morning have shared stuff with me this week about the all too damaging effects of sin on people's lives and on relationships. And there's some families today who are being ripped apart because of poor choices that some family members have made and some sin that has been tolerated. But ultimately sin hurts and offends a holy God. And therefore the nine and a half tribes decide, you know, we're going, to be, we're going to get ruthless about this. We're going to launch war on those two and a half tribes. And I know again my head sends spinning with that. Because it, like, it's not really the thing to do, is it? When someone sins, like, you just go and give them a hiding. But the point is this. Do I take sin that seriously in my own life? Am I ruthless in dealing with it? Or, and again I've said this before, have I become incredibly blasé? Back to the story. We need to finish. Because at this point the whole thing, the whole situation takes a really unexpected turn. And it's a welcome turn. Look at verses 21 to 29. I was going to read them, but I really don't have time to read them. But just, just look at them, glance down them. Because here's what the two and a half tribes say. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. Great start. He knows, and let Israel know, if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord, then may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we built this altar, we did it, for fear that someday your descendants might say to us, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause us to stop fearing. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar. But listen, this isn't an altar for burnt offerings. It's not an altar for sacrifices. On the contrary, says verse 27, it is to be a witness. And then on it goes. You see, it turns out, and I love this, it turns out that the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh were just as passionate about true worship as the other nine and a half-tribes were. They were just as concerned about staying faithful to God as everybody else was. This altar wasn't a rival worship center. This altar wasn't about compromise. It wasn't about sin. It wasn't about disobedience. It wasn't about breaking faith. It wasn't about turning away. This was, in fact, to serve as a permanent witness. That these people belonged to God and that God was their God. In other words, this altar was to be an identifying mark. That although these people were geographically removed, they lived trans-Jordan. They lived on the other side of the Jordan. They still belonged to the people 
of God. And in addition, as it goes on to say, up and coming generations, we're going to see this altar and we're going to go, do you know, we belong to God. This altar is a witness. In other words, this was not an altar of apostasy. This was a symbol of significance. And it was a bit like the 12 stones that Stevie talked about back in chapter 4. They reminded the people about God. They reminded the people, God is good. God is faithful. And I love the idea of symbols. Absolutely love the idea of symbols. We don't have enough symbols. I love symbols like stones and wine and bread. Because what they do is they act as tangible witnesses to God. Not going to say anything else on that. One other thing. Let me just finish by talking about the issue of rumour. How do you deal with rumour? Whenever you hear something about someone, where do you go with that? Well, this is a brilliant model, again, on how you deal with rumours. Because if you look at verse 11, it actually says that the other nine and a half heard something. Word filtered through that those two and a half tribes had done something. Troops were assembled, but before they made a major mistake, they approached this rumour in a particular way. To start with, they took what they heard seriously. If this really was true, it was serious. So they didn't simply ignore the rumour or bury their head in the sand. Secondly, Rather than rush into war immediately, they decided to go in search of more information, more details. In other words, it was time for calm, cool heads while the truth was pursued. And thirdly, they went ahead and had an open, honest discussion with the people about whom the rumours were spread. And so whenever you hear something about anyone, don't tear in there with all guns blazing. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't make your mind up. Instead, three steps. One, don't discount the rumour. It may be true. It may not be true. Secondly, keep a cool head while you discover more. And thirdly, even when you find out more, make sure you go to the person and the people whom the rumour concerns. Key question. Will the people of God remain faithful? Well, it seems like that was their intent. That in light of the breathtaking faithfulness of God, in light of the seriousness of sin, in light of the importance of true worship, in light of a tangible symbol of significance, these people of God were committed to this. Loving him, walking in obedience to him, keeping hold of his commands, holding on to him, serving him with everything they'd got. And I hope and pray, Windsor Baptist, that this can be our intent.